Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, December 28th, the Potty Camp Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, age seven, and Leo, who is three. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. I'm a journalist and podcaster. I live in New Hampshire, and my kids are Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 14, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I am the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Today on our show, we have a question from a listener who is trying to figure out the holidays after getting divorced, and another who's having trouble with potty training. Plus, as always, we'll have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations on Slate Plus. Slate's own Faith Smith will share her own bilingual education parenting fail. But first, time for triumphs and fails. Rebecca, is it a triumph week or a fail week? I don't know. I'm going to let you guys decide, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> Teddy is in um, the school musical. He's a freshman and he is in the chorus of Bye Bye Birdie. And he's been rehearsing uh, with the cast since, you know, the fall. The show is in a couple of weeks. He's really excited about it. It's really his first foray onto the stage, except for, you know, singing in chorus and being in the band. Like It's his first foray into acting and um, dancing and all that stuff. And he's really excited about it. He's been like, you know, doing some of the dance moves like in the kitchen and he's in like the little vocal quartet and all that stuff. Um, so he brought home this week a form for parents to pre-order tickets to the show. And the show is like on a Friday night and then a Saturday afternoon and then a Saturday night. So he brings the form home and we're just chatting. And uh, my son Henry is also playing in the pit orchestra. He's playing all the percussion and stuff. So we were just chatting about like what's the best show to go to? And uh, my son Henry was like, well, I don't know, but like I always like the Saturday night show the best because it's the most relaxed and, you know, all the kinks are out. And so if you're going to, you know, go, I I would go then. So I was like, sure. So I went ahead and bought, pre-bought tickets for just the Saturday night show. And then I find out that like a lot of parents are buying tickets for like all the shows or two of the shows, Mm -hmm. like they're going more than once. And so, yeah. So I said to Teddy, I'm like, um... Did you do you want me to go more than once? And he said, uh, I don't really think you would enjoy. He's like, you don't seem like the kind of person who would go to their own kids play more than once. Like, you should just come once if that's what you want to do. He's like, I'm fine with it. I don't care. (laughs) He's like, I could be weird seeing it more. Well, he seemed like actually cool with it. And he was sort of giving me like like joking hard time about it. And I kind of feel completely fine about only going once. I mean, I remember being in high school and being in concerts and stuff. And my parents only came to one. Um, but I don't know. Did, did, am I am I doing the right thing here by just like going to one performance like a regular audience member human being? Or am I supposed to go to every single performance to watch every single minute of my kid performing in this show? So what do you guys think? Triumph or fail? Triumph. I mean, triumph in the face of like a classic example of parental affection inflation. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> 
right? It, mm-hmm. In our parents' generation, <laughs> the idea that you would go to your kid's school play more than once, like going once is a sacrifice <laughs> and, and, and right. a, a, like a noble thing to do, and it's great, and parents should go. And then there was a whole spate of movies that coincided with the entry of women into the workforce in, in huge numbers. Uh, I should say middle-class women into the workforce in huge numbers, in which like the parents' attendance at the school play becomes the like emotional crux of the thing can the uptight businessman dad like leave the big meeting to sign the bloomfeld contract and instead he races across town to get to the school auditorium you know what i mean we've (laughs) Mm -hmm, we've all mm -hmm. seen this Mm -hmm. and and so because our culture made these things into a totem then it became competitive it became a matter of who can go to the school thing more than who else and so now the what you're seeing is that in your bizarre new hampshire town um, the inflation has has increased to the level where now you're supposed to go to every single one of these things. How long is this performance? It's like yeah. two hours out of your life. No one actually enjoys it. And and <laughs> ugh, it's just horrible. And somebody has to take a stand. Somebody yeah. whose children have faith in the actual authentic emotional connection that they have with their parents and don't require them to do this bullshit performative thing that isn't even for the kids at all. Uh, wow. and, and so I'm going to say wow. this is a huge triumph, not just between you and your family, <laughs> but for your community at large. Uh, wow. I'll I've take never it. heard a more unified theory of parental affection <laughs> over the last 30 years than the one just put forth by our own Gabriel Roth. Um, I don't see this as a fail by any stretch of the imagination. You're supposed to go see your kid perform, You're suppo- and then you're doing that, and your kid seems to be fine with it. Um, your kid seems to be at peace with the oh, yeah, fact <laughs> that you're not going to do the performative, you know, mommy's always there, here's some Rice Krispie treats, I'm, t- I'm driving everyone around, you know, that that kind of thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. I don't want to disparage anyone who parents in that way, but um, it's not, uh, you find it unnecessary, your kid finds it unnecessary, your kid has faith and trust in your love and affection and support for him. I'll take it. Uh, and so, so go see it. And I mean, honestly, and as, as a person, and this is what a little bit what my triumph is going to be about as a person with a kid in a performing arts school where presumably the kids are even better than maybe at the average school. I don't know if that's true, but that's sort of the theory on which it operates. I don't, I mean, I don't know that any person should watch multiple performances of high schoolers doing bye bye birdie. You know what I'm saying? Like, I right. just, this is a, this is a difficult time in our country. <laughs> <laughs> and we need all the joy we can get. And I think that sitting and watching high schoolers do Bye Bye Birdie multiple times in a row, that's that that does not spark joy, I don't think. I mean, I just, it, it I sparks joy the first time, but I don't think it, it will sparks be joy, joy the, the first time, time but right, like right. the fourth, fifth, sixth, unless you're really fascinated. Because I've seen some performances of my kids multiple times, but that's because like my background is in theater and we get to talk about it and we get to talk about performances and we get to, re- you know, unless you're somehow like really interested in high school theater as a, as an aesthetic and kind of philosophical and artistic pursuit and you want to like <laughs> examine it. Then unless if that's not the case, uh, you know, you go, you see the kid, you bring the flowers, you tell him he's great. And then everyone gets on with their lives. Definite wow. triumph. You should feel proud. Well, thanks, guys. I, I, I kind of did. And I was looking for validation and I got it. And I really appreciate it. All right. Someone You've else come can to the go right now. place. <laughs> Carvel, triumph or fail? 
Yeah, my, well, my triumph actually is also a high school theater triumph. Um, I feel like I've been, I feel like, you know, I shared last week about Ezra and my concerns, and there was a, such great feedback on Twitter and on the Facebook page about that. So many uh, parents who had observations and thoughts and shared similar experiences. Um, and I also feel like, you know, one of the things is that I often talk about where Ezra struggles, but I don't talk a lot about where Ezra's great because he's great in a lot of ways. And, and this is one of them. Um, he goes to a school for the performing arts here in um, in Oakland, California. He had to audition to get in. He pretty much did the whole thing on his own in sixth grade. He decided he wanted, at the end of fifth grade, he decided he wanted to go. He f- picked out his audition monologue. He wrote his essay. You know, he went down there. He auditioned. He got in, and he's been going to this school for a number of years. Now he's in high school. The school separated. It goes from six to 12, but the middle schools and high schools are separate uh, schools, essentially. So now he's... Now he's a small fish in the big pond of high school, and they did a production. They're they're doing their fall production is of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, which is a two person play. So spots it's a real it's a really great production. I actually when I was in the theater school at NYU, this was a this was one of the go tos for all kinds of acting scenes. We did a full a few full performances of it, uh, and. My son auditioned. I think it was like the second day of school that they had auditions. And at first, he wasn't going to do it. And I said, "Dude, you are you kidding me? You're totally cut out for this." He's like, "But Dad, I'm a freshman. These are seniors. You're not you're not going to get a freshman's not going to get a part in a play f- with two people in it. You know, when there's seniors around, that's not even going to happen." I was like, "But still, you should try it." And he did, and he got the part. Nice Aww. and. And and uh, and that he's been rehearsing. He stays after school for rehearsal um, three days out of the week, and he stays till six to rehearse. And then um, this this week he's staying till eight because of they're going to miss some rehearsal time because of the upcoming holiday break. And uh, it's been really interesting and inspiring to watch him go through this process and really handle his his work like a like a job. I mean, I was thinking about this thing last week about how I concerned about him being a layabout and then afterwards I was like, "But wait a second. Are his grades great? I don't think so. We'll find more will be revealed. I think he probably isn't as doing as good as he's telling us he's doing, but that'll be revealed. But isn't he also going to rehearsal every single day with his script, showing up for work with his lunch pail, so to speak, working through these scenes, working through the beats, like working with the director, really in over his head in terms of being the single youngest person in this cast, which he talks about when he gets in the car after rehearsal, like, wow, I'm in over my head, and this is requiring stuff that I don't quite know how to do yet as an actor, and I'm working it. Isn't he also doing that? And I'm like, he is also doing that. (laughs) And so I, I, I was like, you know, part of the other issue that I, I feel like we always have, and I've talked about this before, is because I see such great potential in him, I sometimes make the parental mistake of harping on, from his point of view, what he's not doing instead of giving him credit for what he is doing. And that is that is the tricky balance of having a kid, because if you're like, you didn't clean up your room and you left these dishes in the sink, a kid can be like, why are you always telling me I'm doing everything wrong? And you want to be like, but you did do that wrong. <laughs> you're supposed to clean your room and do the dishes. But um, but I've talked before about how that's something that we've struggled with. And uh, I think because I like ha- have high expectations, and I have high expectations of myself. Um, in some ways that's difficult for him. And, uh, so I just wanted to take a moment to like honor what he is doing, which is pretty badass if you stop and think about it. So hmm. that's a victory for Ezra. That's great. 
That's wonderful. I was actually going to mention last week, and I we just, we just ran out of time, that, you know, I would say, like, either do something or make something should be the rule. Yeah. And he's making yeah. something right now, which right. is, you That's know, exactly it's, right. it's as important as doing something, you yeah, know? it is. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I also have a triumph this week, although mine does not involve <sighs> high school theater, fortunately. Here we go. <laughs> um, so this weekend, I took Leo to the movies for the first time. He likes to watch TV. He's never been to the movies. Uh, and uh, some friends of ours were going, and, and Eliza was sick, and so it was just me and Leo and these friends going to the movies. We went to see Ferdinand, new animated adaptation of the book by Monroe Leaf about a pacifist bull who refuses to uh, get in the ring with the matador, and, and everybody throws flowers, and he likes to sit and smell the flowers. Um, it's a lovely book, and and the movie is fine. It's better than I was expecting it to be. And if you find yourself having to see it, then it'll be fine. But Leo had never been to a movie before. And he's a little nervous because like he doesn't know what it is. And he says, wow, that is bigger than our TV. And I said, yeah, it is. And he doesn't know why the lights are going out. And I tell him we have to be a little quiet, but he can whisper to me. And so he's whispering to me. And the way, you know, of course, they have to expand on the story. If, like, the book is, like, 20 pages long and they make it into a movie, that's literally an hour and 45 minutes. I have no idea why anyone thought the movie of Ferdinand should be an hour and 45 minutes long. But um, the the first thing that happens is Ferdinand and the other little kid bulls are practicing being bullfighters. And then Ferdinand's dad is selected to go off and fight in the bullfights in Madrid. Oh. And Ferdinand's dad oh. said, well, see you later, sport, and and <laughs> sort of gets loaded onto the wagon to go to the bullfight. And it's done mm. in a nice way because, like, all the grown-ups in the theater know that we're not going to see Ferdinand's dad again. And nobody in the movie says anything about, like, well, we're never going to see Ferdinand's dad again because he's going to get <laughs> slaughtered at the bullfighting ring in Madrid. There's no – like, it, it, it's very nicely done for the sort of split audience of this movie. Unfortunately – when the dad is driving away in the wagon, then Leo is like, where's his dad going? And I, I, I whisper, he's going off on a trip. And he said, is he going to come back? And I say, yes, he's definitely, <laughs> definitely going to come back. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, 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 and he says, okay. And I figure like that'll be the end of it. And then Ferdinand goes off and has a bunch more adventures and he gets adopted by a little girl on a farm and he gets to smell the flowers. But then the bullfighting guys see him and think he'll be a big ferocious bull in the bullfighting ring. So they try to take him away to fight in the bullfight. And there's a lot of adventures and it's a very picaresque narrative. Um, and every 15 minutes, Leo is leaning over to me and going, when is his dad going to come back? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and I, I realized like... This is going to, like, it's not going to go away. This question is not going to go away. Um, and I I had to keep saying to him, he's going to come back later, maybe after the movie is over. And every 15 minutes, he keeps asking me this. And then at the end of the movie, Ferdinand and the little girl are happily reunited. Ferdinand doesn't fight in the bullfights, and the, he, the little girl rescues him, and they go back to the farm, and he sees all his friends, the dog, and the other bulls. And, like, there's a big happy ending. It's exactly the happy ending you would expect. But the disappearance of the father is that little dangling thread that's meant to let the adults know that this is not just a piece of saccharine pablum. And he will not let go of that thread. Uh... And he keeps asking me, like, when is the dad going to come back? And um, we walk home or we take the bus home and we get back home and his mom asks, like, how was the movie? And do I, we say it was a great movie. And I said, like, and Ferdinand's dad went away at the beginning on a trip. 
But then after the movie, he comes back on the farm, and then Ferdinand and the little girl and all his friends, the bulls, and his dad are all together on the farm, and it's really nice. And it seems to really satisfy him. And um, I feel like I successfully managed the potential trauma <laughs> of the disappearance of Ferdinand's dad through lying. And mm. that is my triumph. Ferdinand's dad is hanging out with Nemo's mom at a farm upstate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bambi's mom is there, too. I'm not judging. I am not going to judge you for this. I did this kind of shit all the time when my kids were little. And you got to do what works. You got to do it. When he sees you the movie again, he'll it. watch it on TV. And I'll be like, wait a second. Ferdinand's dad is <laughs> dead. <laughs> And I'll be like, yeah, just like oh, I told man. you. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, before we move on, let's do the business. Uh, as always, if you have a question you want us to answer on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833. We want to tell you now about another great Slate podcast, Slate Money, a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance with Felix Salmon, Jordan Weissman, and Anna Szymanski. Each week, they discuss three topics of interest to the world of money and business. A recent episode dealt with the Disney-Fox merger, Apple's interest in Shazam, and the rise of Bitcoin. The show drops every Saturday morning. Check it out at slate.com slash money or wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we're joined by Slate Live executive producer Faith Smith, who has a fail for us that has to do with trying to raise her kid as bilingual. To hear that segment and others like it every week and to get this and all your other Slate podcasts with no ads whatsoever, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a great way to help support the show. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and our other great podcasts. So if you would like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to the show. All right. Uh, time for our first question. This question is from listener Jessica. Hi, I'm the mother of a four-year-old girl who I am co-parenting with her father who lives very close by. We parted ways when she was two, and this will be our third Christmas separated since she was born. We've always done the holiday together. The last year was the first in her memory, it seems. He came to our house. The previous year, I went to them, also in that house. This year, he has a new home that he bought down the street, and it's his year to have her the eve and the morning of Christmas. We also have new communication boundaries we put in place, and we are co-parenting with less physical sharing of space than we have for the past two years, in some part precipitated by a serious relationship he is in that began this summer. The new boundaries have been good for us both, but along with them, he requested no shared Christmas. He said that he thought it was not normal what we had been doing with shared holidays, birthdays, and even hikes and some trips. I think just putting what he or his girlfriend wants ahead of what our child would want. Is this abnormal? Should we extend our boundaries to include Christmas? 
I should note we have two very different family experiences. I was raised by two parents who stayed married, for better or worse, and he had an absentee father and lived in a few formations of blended families. His mother married and moved a few times with them growing up. Thanks for your input, Jessica. So here's the thing. There's really no such thing as normal around holidays um, after a divorce. And you got divorced around the same time age-wise as my kids. My kids were two and four when I divorced their dad. And we, like you, started with some shared time. We didn't spend holidays together physically in the same house, but we did do a couple of joint birthday parties. And there was a lot of flexibility around things like Christmas Day. You know, we would, you know, we had it in our parenting plan, um, what was supposed to happen. And then we would just be like really loosey-goosey and flexible about it. And then when my ex-husband got into a serious relationship and ended up getting married, all the boundaries changed, um, completely changed. And again, I, like you, would hear it's not normal to do things like share birthday parties or be flexible. We have to do what the parenting plan says. And it was an adjustment for me. And I came to realize that a lot of that was coming from what the expectations were in his new relationship around co-parenting. She also had kids um, and there were just different boundaries and different expectations. And that was an adjustment period for me. But over time, um, I have to say, like, my ex-husband now, the kid's dad, is now in a position, he's a lot more flexible now than he used to be about about these kinds of things. And we are more communicative and sharing more than we used to just in terms of our talking and, and flexibility around schedule. And I've really come to like the kind of more delineated boundaries. Um, and I do think in some ways, even though the rigidity of it wasn't good for the kids. The actual like structure around it was just fine. I mean, they were pretty little when things changed. And for them, it was they'll we'll have Christmas at dad's house and then we'll have Christmas at mom's house or we'll have Christmas Eve at dad's house. And then I get dropped off at mom's house at 10 and we'll have Christmas Day with mom. And they learned to go with the flow like pretty well and just fine. Um, I think it's really important here that to understand that what's likely happening is that your ex's um, new relationship is what is shifting things. And that is natural um, and that is normal and it can be painful. But I think it would be a mistake to try to push back too hard because then what you're doing, uh, what you are in danger of doing is creating boundaries that are enforced harder and new lines that are drawn even farther away from where you want them to be. Because if what they're asking for is basically what a lot of divorced parents do, splitting holidays, you know, back and forth rather than spending them physically together, which is frankly pretty unusual. Um, and if you really push back and say, but this is what the kids want, but this is what, you know, I want. I think you're in danger of actually harming the relationship between you and your ex to the point where the kids will be affected more than if you just make a simple schedule change in the holidays. I know it's really difficult. I know Christmas especially, the holidays especially, are when you expect everyone to sort of be together and be happy. But unfortunately, it is one of the consequences of divorce is that things change and they'll continue to change. And I would expect if I were you that this won't be the first and it won't be the last time that um, there's a boundary shift like this. So I'm sorry you're going through it, but if I were you, I'd go with the flow a little bit on this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think one of the things that I'm thinking about is that 
the it, it does also to me sound like this is has almost everything to do with the new relationship and the new boundaries that are being set by a partner or maybe the feeling of discomfort that's expressed which is inspiring your ex to make new boundaries in order to accommodate those and i i recognize that that's painful because it feels like a third person who sort of like hasn't historically been a part of the family coming in and setting up rules for the existing family and that is that hurts and i think that hurt and maybe even resentment and kind of desire to push back is what drives us in those situations to say well wait a minute we have i have this can't this will not stand like I, the part of us that says i don't want this to stand i think comes from that and yet the i really agree with rebecca that the thing about divorce is that it changes the shape of the family I mean it does and like it's it's not it's not great the way it does in many cases and it's usually not what anyone wants it's usually we end up with a compromise of what both parties want and so um you know it it would be different I think if the person was saying these or if the new boundaries were like you know you never get to see your kids or anything like that that would be extreme that would be a violation of parental rights but in this case the boundary is that we do holidays in this back and forth way as opposed to together. I wouldn't get too hung up on the question of normal or not because I agree with Rebecca that nothing is normal and that that even that framing of it when I hear it if I if someone if I were to start to sort of question well is it normal is it not normal that then could just be fodder for me to like go more into my own internal monologue about how I have the right to persist this and push back and stuff which you do have the right I don't know if it's wise because this new person in the family is also trying to figure out how to make this work it's really hard for a person to come into an existing family dynamic as a partner it's really hard and if you're a partner coming into an existing family dynamic that has divorce and kids there's you're really trying to find your way and what your role is and where you fit and and um it's not easy and so in order for things to go smoothly people everyone involved has to be relatively happy and i think that in this situation because what's being asked isn't unreasonable that it's helpful to try and figure out a way to give people some space to work things out. And who knows, as more comfort is built over time, this might change. There might be more flexibility, right? So that's something that could happen. But I think for now, even though it's hurtful and painful, I think processing that hurt and pain is something you should do elsewhere in your life, not with your partner or with your partner's wife and not with your kids. And I think what the partner what the what the new boundary is falls under the realm of reasonable. And so I think you should go with the flow in this. Yeah, I just want to add one thing to what's been said, uh, which is your daughter is four years old. She does not yet have a firm idea of what Christmas actually is in your family, right? She's had Christmases after you were divorced where you spent the time together, but it's not, she's not old enough to know that like, oh, yeah, this is how we do Christmas every year. She hasn't, there haven't been enough years for that. Uh, the person who has a firm idea about what Christmas is in your family is you. And those ideas are really, really hard to let go of. Um, I, I don't have personal experience with divorce, but but my the shape of my family changed when my father died when I was a teenager. And um, I remember, you know, obviously it was terrible for a long time, but 
for an even longer time, the most terrible thing was holidays because everybody has a very firm pattern in their mind of like, what does a holiday look like in our family? And then like, if somebody's not there, then just the the brokenness of that and the, the way in which everything feels wrong and this is not how it's supposed to be. Um, it's, it's a very profound and, and difficult and terrible feeling. And it doesn't surprise me that you are getting anxious about this, uh, the shape of your family holidays changing. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what to tell you about that, except that, uh, you should give yourself as much space as possible to feel those feelings and, and also, um, Keep in mind that this is about you. It's not about your kid, that your kid uh, wants to be with you and wants to be with her father, presumably, and can have a Christmas with you and can have a Christmas with her father, and that can be a satisfying Christmas for her. And that the task of reframing what Christmas means is something that you have to do for yourself. Um, And good luck with that. I just want to add one thing because I know we've talked on the show before about you know, the encroachment of non-parents and step-parents and how it is the parents, you know, primary role to make the parenting decisions and to sort of be the driving force in the kids' lives. And I, I don't want to confuse that with this um, because I, I do think there's an opportunity here to build good, good communication and ensure future peace um as if you do as carvel says you know you know, don't really like push back too hard on this one because he is asking for something reasonable um i i think that there is danger here in in triangulating and creating a negative situation as i said and again um i i don't want to confuse this with you know whether or not the new woman in your ex's life is making a parenting decision here because it does sound like he is on board with this. It sounds like this is what he wants to do. And I think it's also important to weigh that he is, you know, 50 percent of the parenting equation here. And if you felt really strongly about, you know, taking your daughter on a trip to see relatives or about, you know, celebrating Thanksgiving in a specific way, I'm sure you would want him to respect that parenting choice of yours, too. So just remember, he's also making a parenting choice here. Um, and whether or not it's influenced by the relationship, which I do think it is, um, I, I, I don't want you to get into the area where you're thinking now it's the it's like the girlfriend's fault or that it's you know turning into that because it's not. This is very separate, I think, from, you know, the idea of parents making primary decisions for their kids. So. You know, it's a good opportunity, I think, to to build a nice foundation for flexibility and peace going forward. And I, I would take that opportunity if I were in your shoes. All right. Thanks very much for the email, Jessica. Uh, if you have a question that you want us to address on our show, you can email it to us at momanddad at slate.com or give us a call at 424-255-7833. We have another question now. This one is from Jennifer. Hi, Carvel, Gabe, and Rebecca. I'm a mom of a two-and-a-half-year-old and a four-month-old. Can I ask you guys to talk about potty training your kids and how they ended up normal despite being really hard to train? My two-and-a-half-year-old is intelligent, fun, and curious, but an absolute nightmare about potty training. She's in pull-ups now, was wearing underwear this summer, but stopped when the baby was born. Now she'll pee in the toilet when the bribe is right, but couldn't care less otherwise, and seriously freaks out if she doesn't get a diaper for number two. And I'm invested too much time and energy to back down, so I just keep feeding her lots of little treats, hoping it'll click. Please convince me that this is normal as people say it is. It's just taking forever, and I really would rather just ship her off to a potty camp rather than deal with it myself. (laughs) Jennifer. (laughs) I love this question so much. (laughs) 
Yeah. That was going to be my recommendation. Potty camps. Just send all the kids to potty camps. I can't believe she scooped me on that. That's Don't want to go to potty camp. Not going to potty camp. <laughs> you, don't make me send you to potty camp. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 like I, yeah, potty training is, is hard and, and it sucks. And the thing that sucks the most about it is that it feels like that you're single-handedly responsible for it and the kid, and you can mess it up in such a way that your kid will never potty train and that for the kid will be 30 years old and still pooping and peeing on floors and office buildings and <laughs> that the pressure is too great. And that's what makes potty training suck. And it turns out, at least it seems to me, that you're not anywhere near as responsible for it as you think. And it, the likelihood of it not happening at all is way lower <laughs> than you, than than we think when we're that at that stage of parenting. The two kids potty trained totally differently. Um, Ezra, who was relatively slow on all developmental milestones, we were panicked about everything with Ezra. He isn't. He didn't find his toes fast enough, and he isn't crawling fast enough. And you know, we were like on the with the books and on the online. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, you know. If he doesn't point his finger at this age, that means he's developmentally delayed. You know, we were all that stuff with him. He was always pushing us to the limit on that stuff. But potty training, he did really early at 18 months. And, and the way it happened was we were living in this house that had hardwood floors. And one day we just were like, I don't feel like putting a diaper on him. And then he pooped on the floor. And then literally he looked at it. And after that, he used the potty all the time. I mean, we had established <laughs> the potty. We had set it up. We had tried to get him on it. But he was sort of like, yeah, this doesn't seem interesting to me. I think I'll just stick with my old thing. And then he pooped on the floor one time. And I think was just so disgusted by it. Just he, it was really weird. It felt like it, and this is kind of my point. It felt like there was a natural kind of a sort of thing at play that had little to do with us. He just didn't didn't seem to like seeing his poop on the floor. And then after that, he was down for the potty, and it never became an issue again. Georgia took much longer, and it was a much more traditional route. But in the end. They all, everyone uses the bathroom now, you know, like every, <laughs> every single one of those kids. And, and remarkably, and they know where their kid, toes are. They can find their they toes. Know where their toes are. Good job, and remarkably, yeah, And remarkably, every kid knows how to use the bathroom. And not all parents are doing the same potty training thing. Some parents are giving them candy. Some parents are yelling. Some parents are letting them go diaper free. Some parents are teaching them silent. People are doing all kinds of things. And yet they all end up with an entire world full of people who poop and pee in the appointed areas for the most part when sober. <laughs> and so to me, I feel like it's like the threat that you're doing it wrong or that it's going to, it's not going to work out is, is that's not an issue. The fact that it's frustrating and that it feels overwhelming and feels like it's never going to be right. That's real. And you just have to sit with that because it is going to be fine. The, the kids are going to do it. Don't do yep. yelling though. Yelling is not yeah, a don't good do method. Yelling. Don't right. don't do the yelling. That's how you get people like Donald Trump or whatever. <laughs> this is true. Rebecca, go ahead. All right. So this woman's daughter is two and a half, which is pretty young to expect, I think, um, you know, the kid to be completely potty trained. I know that, at least among my friend group, the girls tended to potty train a little younger than the boys. But like every single boy in my kids' little playgroup when we were kids, none of them really got it until after they were three. And I remember um, having my son's best friend Pete over when he was three and his mom, you know, he was like this huge kid and his mom left me pull-ups and she was like, he's wearing underwear. 
there. But if he has to go poop, he needs to put a pull-up on to do it. It was like so gross. But I remember Teddy and Henry both peed and pooped in corners of our house. Um, Teddy opened a drawer and would pee inside a drawer in the <laughs> guest room in our like lower nice. level. It was disgusting. This is... An unfortunate, I think, underappreciated rite of passage uh, for parenting. It sucks so bad. You think you are completely alone. Plus, you're probably surrounded by other parents who are bragging about how well their kids are doing at potty training as if it's some sort of like defecation competition. And there is the added pressure sometimes of programs like daycare or preschool not allowing kids in unless they're potty trained, which is adds a whole other layer of like societal expectation. But yeah, it sucks. And I think with Henry, the way we finally um, were able to get it done was, you know, he was in the pull-up phase and we kind of made him responsible for changing his own pull-ups. We get, like left the diaper genie or whatever it was out. And it was like, you know, when you need to change your pull-up, you need to change it yourself. And that's how he finally got over it because I think he got sick of the actual chore of having to put his take off his dirty pull-up and put it in the thing and get a new pull-up out and put it on. That really seemed to do the trick for him. But um, I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. It's just what finally worked. I think he was like three and two months and he was about to start school and there was just a lot of pressure. And I think I may have lied to the school and said he was potty trained when he wasn't, when he actually started. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I hear you. It sucks. Two and a half is still pretty young. You might have like a like a year of this ahead of you. So, you know, prepare yourself and, and don't sweat it. And if any like smug parent talks about how quickly and how beautifully their kid is using the potty, just just tell them to go take a leap. Just do it because it's a bullshit thing to be competitive about because everyone gets there and it is not a sign of how smart or stupid or amazing your child is if they get it right. So don't sweat it. We feel you. And I love the question. Thank you for asking it. All right. Thanks for writing. Good luck, Jennifer. Time to do recommendations. I have a recommendation. I'm going to recommend two picture books by the artist David Weisner. Uh, the first one is called Flotsam, and the second one is called Tuesday. They are beautifully hand-painted. They don't have any words in them. Each one tells a story in a way that an older kid can follow the story themselves, but a younger kid, you can read with them and, and point out what's happening and say, okay, what's the boy doing now? And the kid can follow the story with you. Um, they are clever and cute and fantastic and sort of beautiful. Um, one of the issues that I've been having with Leo when we read books is that for a long time, he has only wanted to read books that relate the plot of an episode of television, which <laughs> are the worst and most yes. disheartening they books to read. Like uh. a, a book that's just an episode of Doc McStuffins. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so depressing. Um, and we have these wonderful books. We have all, you know, he's the second kid. So we already acquired our whole great library of beautiful children's books. And, and he doesn't want to read them. He just wants to read Doc McStuffins. But I managed to get him to read First Tuesday and then Flotsam by David Weissner. And he loved both of them and keeps asking for them again and again. Uh, and it's really a, a fun thing to read with him. Um, that's my recommendation. Mm. Carvel, yeah. what's yours? Uh, I am recommending a book, a young adult novel that Georgia is currently reading. She recommends this for kids ages. She says fifth grade and up. It's called Where the Streets Had a Name. It's by Rhonda Abdel Fattah. And it's the story. Um, I read. She read me a passage of it this morning, and it really was beautiful. It's a story of two kids who undertake uh, a journey from uh, Bethlehem to Jerusalem in order to get 
um, some dirt that they think will be important in saving one of their grandmothers. And it does approach the Israel-Palestine conflict. They're Palestinian kids. They have to deal with checkpoints and curfews, et cetera. Um, but the, it, it seems to deal with it in a, in a relatively oblique – not uh, oblique isn't the word. Um, but in, in a it, – it, it tells – it's more of like sort of at the altar of observation of the story of these two kids. And the, the backdrop is this moment in time, but it isn't really about that. But it is, but it isn't, but it is. Anyway, she, she finds the book compelling and beautifully written. She's turning into quite the little book critic. And uh, it's uh, not a long read. It's uh, 100 and something pages, but relatively big print, double-spaced. And uh, she says that when she's reading it now in middle school, but she says a lot of kids were reading it in elementary school and seemed to like it a lot. So that's Where the Streets Had a Name by Rhonda Abdel Fattah. Great. Rebecca? I've got a book of a different kind. This is more commercial. Sorry, guys. Um, But my kids, when they were little, were super into Legos, and they were super into those Mm -hmm. branded Star Wars uh, Lego sets and Batman Lego sets, and, you know, it had to be like a set of whatever thing they were into at the time. Um, And there are some really cool, um, long-lasting, and by long-lasting, I mean this is the kind of book your kid will keep and use as a reference for a long time if they love Legos. Um, They're called Lego Visual Dictionaries. There's a Lego Mm. Star Wars Visual Dictionary, and there's a Lego Batman visual dictionary. Um, and what they basically have is like a complete encyclopedia of every uh, Lego Star Wars kit that has ever come out. Mm. And so it has it by the model name and then it has like the picture of what the thing was or is. It includes discontinued ones. And it's basically just like a, a visual guide to everything that Lego has ever made of this ilk. It's big. It's colorful. Uh, my kids used to use it just to sort of gawp at and gawk at and like write down like lists of things that they were hoping to get someday. But also they would use it as a way to make things uh, just with like the big random Lego bin Legos that they had. They would try to like recreate some of the ships and stuff that, that were in the Lego visual dictionary books. So I, I really love these books. I came across one a couple months ago that had um, it was in rough shape. Both of my kids had used it. So they're, you know, 14 and 16 now, so you can get a sense of kind of what shape it was. And plus, it had a giant bite taken out of a corner of it that I think Teddy may have done when he was teething. Um, and I gave this shoddy old ass Lego Star Wars Visual Dictionary to a coworker of mine who has a four year old son. And this little boy apparently has been sleeping with this book under the covers with him for the last like couple of months ever since he got it. He loves it. He's obsessed with it. And it really has become sort of like the center of his life as far as just being able to pick up something and look at it. So now they take this book with them to do boring errands. Now they take this book with them in the car. And yes, when they need him to settle down, they give him this book. So anyway, check out the Star Wars Lego or Star Wars Batman visual dictionaries. I think they're about 20 bucks um, at the bookstore or on Amazon. Um, and that is my recommendation recommendation for this time. There's a thing that we don't often appreciate, which is how much kids are into like cataloging and um, oh, yeah. like we think of kids as be- existing in a world of pure fantastical imagination, but actually they're also fascinated by like taxonomy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, they love dinosaurs, yeah. right? That's why they love different kinds of tools. When Henry was little, he used to look at the Home Depot catalog and like like name all the different <laughs> kinds of yeah. saws, yeah. you know, uh, because he watched Bob the Builder and he was like reciprocating saw. I remember him like knowing the names <laughs> of all these stupid saws and we would just give him the Home Depot catalog. 
catalog, like as a gift uh, in his Christmas stocking, and he loved it. So yeah, this is kind of yeah. like that, but about toys. That's my recommendation: is give your child the Home Depot catalog in their Christmas <laughs> stocking and watch their eyes light up. <laughs> And that's our show. If you have a question that you would like us to tackle, give us a call. 424-255-7833. Uh, you can tell us what you thought of this week's show, last week's show, or even next week's show at facebook.com slash momanddadderfighter. This show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy. I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.